Let me just go ahead and pray for us one more time. God, thank you so much for uh, for giving us privilege to to come here to share your word, um, what you've been teaching me through this word. I uh, pray that today I'd not be a distraction, but that I'd be an instrument, that I'd be um, your tool today, that, uh, that you'd use me well um, as I present your word. Uh, I pray that those who are hearing, Lord, that they would hear and that they would understand. Um, they would see uh, your work, your goodness, and your love, uh, and that they would embrace you um, for the good God that you are. Wherever these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Why God, why God, do I gotta suffer? Pain in my heart, carry burdens full of struggle. Why God, why God, do I gotta bleed? Every stone thrown at you is resting at my feet. Some of you might know those lines. Uh, it's from the rap song, Fear, by Kendrick Lamar. In this song, he's, of course, talking all about fear. Uh, in the first verse, he talks about when he was seven years old and his experience with fear. Talking about constantly being in fear of his mother. Uh, over and over, he talks about, uh, really, he, he shares from her perspective all the reasons why he's going to get beat for this and for that. And get beat for talking back. Get beat for uh, saying the video game is broken. Get beat for uh, jumping on the couch, for uh, walking in the house with tears in his eyes. Um, that his homework better be finished. Uh, get beat if... Uh, the teacher calls home, and then he says this uh, in her voice. He says, you know my patience is running thin. I got buku payments to make, county buildings on me, trying to make my food, or take my food stamps away. Seven years old, think you run this house by yourself. You're going to fear me if you don't fear anyone else. The second verse, a decade later, he talks about when he's 17 years old. And the struggles and the fears that he has as a 17-year-old in his neighborhood. These are the, are the fears that he has. I'll probably die anonymous. I'll probably die with promises. I'll probably die walking back, up, back home from the candy house. I'll probably die because these colors are standing out. I'll probably die because that's what you do when you're 17. All worries in a hurry. I wish I controlled things. The third verse, another decade later, when he's 20, 27 years old. His career has taken off at this point, but he still has fears. When I was 27, I grew accustomed to more fear. Accumulated 10 times over throughout the years, my newfound life made all of me magnified. How many accolades do I need to block denial, the shock value of my success, but bolts in me? All this money is God playing a joke on me. Is it for the moment, and will he see me as a joke? From the Bible. All of us have had experiences in our lives that have taught us about fear, what it means to fear, just like Kendrick's experience in his life. Um, and our experiences form us. Our experiences around fear form us. They change the way that we think about fear, the way that we feel about fear, uh, the way that we even uh, will think about love and fear as opposites. I don't want to experience any kind of fear, right? That's what a lot of us feel. Um, and so in some ways we can uh, completely agree and feel what Kendrick is feeling when he's saying, I don't want to feel this fear. But I want to share with you what God has to say about fear. So let me go ahead and read our text. 
uh, from Exodus chapter 20, uh, 18 through 20. It says this. Now, when all the people who saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But don't let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear. Somebody say fear. Fear. For God has come to test you that the fear, somebody say fear. Fear. Fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. So I got, I got three points from the text. Uh, first, first point, fretting fear. Fretting fear, R-F-R-E-T-T, I-N-G, fretting fear. Second point is favoring Pharaoh, favoring Pharaoh. And third, fixing fear, fixing fear. So that first point, fretting fear. Let me give you a little bit of context to this passage here in Exodus chapter 20. So the people here, that he's talking about when it says, now when all the people, the people here, we're talking about the nation of Israel. These are the descendants of Abraham, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, uh, also known as Israel, all of their descendants. These are the Israelites. And they first ended up in Egypt uh, as a result of uh, what Jacob's son did in bringing all of the Israelites to Egypt. See, Jacob, or rather, Jacob's son, Joseph, he, uh, he uh, ended up in uh, Egypt under kind of poor circumstances, but he ended up uh, having great success while he was in Egypt, so much so that he became second in all of Egypt. He was second under Pharaoh. So he was ruler over uh, basically all these people taking care of all of uh, the the, um, things that they needed to take care of in Egypt because they knew that a famine was coming. And so famine was going to come and strike all of the land surrounding Egypt. And so um, Pharaoh knew about this. Joseph knew about this, and to protect his family, he brought his brothers uh, to Egypt. He brought his brothers to Egypt, and so all of Joseph's brothers end up in Egypt, and all their whole family ends up in Egypt. And so this is how the Israelites have come to uh, into Egypt at the uh, end of Genesis. And so at the uh, beginning of Exodus, we actually learned that things have not gone so well for the descendants of Joseph and his brothers since they, uh, uh, since we left off at the end of Genesis. So what had happened was uh, a new Pharaoh had uh, risen who did not treat the Israelites well. And so along the way, they ended up actually becoming slaves in Egypt. They became slaves in Egypt. And so as becoming slaves in Egypt, they Uh, And living in Egypt for these 350 years, they became well accustomed to the Egyptian religion. Um, They were well aware of Pharaoh's role in Egyptian mythology and Egyptian religion. They knew that Pharaoh was considered to be almost like a god himself, a god king, or almost like a priestly god king himself, um, that he spoke on behalf of their gods. And their gods that they did not see that Pharaoh was a representative of, they were capricious, that they would change their mind in an instant. They decided that they were angry with the people, that they would uh, strike them with another plague, that he would uh, take something away from them. 
And so they were, they knew about these gods. Um, and then uh, they knew about the idol worship that was practiced in Egypt, that they would build statues of these gods that were worshiped in Egypt. And so they would bow down to these statues. They had little concepts of worshiping an invisible God, uh, uh, according to the uh, Egyptian religion. And so uh, in growing up with this, right, they've, they've seen this all their lives. Um, they've, their parents and their parents' parents and their grandparents have witnessed uh, this practice of religion and living in Egypt in these circumstances. Um, but most recently uh, in Exodus, they also witnessed the power of the one true God, that God uh, sent plagues onto Egypt to teach uh, Pharaoh a lesson, to show him that you have no power. And so they witnessed these 10 plagues, these 10 chances really that Pharaoh had to release the Israelites from their slavery in Israel showing that he had more power over Pharaoh. And what does Pharaoh do? He continues to panic. He says, no, I can't let these people go. What will that make me look like? That'll make me look weak. And so he continues over and over. He just, uh, he ignores these plagues. He ignores Moses's uh, beckoning to, to allow Pharaoh to release the Israelites. And so uh, finally at the 10th plague, Pharaoh gives in for the moment. He says, go, take your people and leave. And so they leave, not only leaving, but they actually uh, take the gold um, and belongings of the, uh, their Egyptian neighbors as they're leaving. So they not only leave as once slaves, but they leave wealthy. Um, and so beyond that, after that, Pharaoh, he changes his minds. He chases after the Israelites. And he says, you know, I was weak before, but now I got to show the world. I got to show these Israelites that they can't, uh, they can't just leave like this. And so they get chased all the way down to the Red Sea. And we're not, we're not talking about just the little river here. We're talking about a huge body of water here that they come to. And God splits the Red Sea. God splits the Red Sea so that the Israelites can pass through it, um, escaping the Egyptians. And not only escaping the Egyptians and Pharaoh, but as they pass through the Red Sea, the Egyptians follow them and the Egyptians are crushed under the waves of the sea as God uh, allows the waters to fall upon them. And so not only has God uh, shown himself powerful over Pharaoh by sending these plagues and showing that he has power over all the natural worlds um, by sending these plagues, but he's also shown himself powerful over Pharaoh by actually destroying him and his army in the Red Sea. This is a powerful God. And not only that, keep on going. He, the, uh, as the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness, they are lacking of water and God provides water for them miraculously. Not only that, they are wanton of food. And so God provides bread from heaven. How many of you all seen that, right? God provides bread from he uh, heaven manna. And when they start to get annoyed with this diet of bread, um, and they say, you know, it would have been better to have the cucumbers back in Egypt. What does God provide? He provides quail for them in the wilderness as well. And so the Israelites, all through this, they have seen God as powerful over Pharaoh. They've seen God as uh, powerful even to destroy Pharaoh and his army, even to provide for them food and water and all their needs um, as they're wandering through the wilderness. So let me share again. This is what they witnessed on the mountain. 
says, when all the people saw thunder, or witnessed thunder, you can't really see thunder, uh, when they witnessed the thunder and the flashes of lightning, they witnessed the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, Mount Sinai smoking, the Israelites are terrified. They are terrified. They see this scene um, in, in Exodus 19, just the chapter before, talked about how the Lord descended on Mount Sinai in fire. Could you imagine that scene? I mean, the way that I picture this is like Mount Doom. Like, this does not look good if you're familiar with Lord of the Rings. Like, this is a mountain that looks like a volcano in this moment with clouds swirling over it, with smoke pouring out of it, with lightning crashing upon it. And they are told that this God that has freed them from their exile or from uh, their exodus in Egypt, right? That this God is upon this mountain, this terrifying scene. And so Moses says, well, I'm going to go up there. So the people were afraid and they trembled. The people looked at the scene in front of them and they were terrified. They stopped in that moment thinking of God as the deliverer. They stopped. They forgot about it. They forgot about how God had saved them through uh, defeating the Egyptians. They forgot about God providing manna in the desert, forgot about God providing water um, where there was no water. They forgot about this because they're just looking at what's in front of them. And we can, I mean, feel that too, right? We all have experienced these moments where we are looking at the scene in front of us. We're looking at the world around us. We look at the injustices that are committed in our country. We look at the injustices and the evils that are done um, abroad in this world where people are being killed senselessly. People are um, being uh, taken of their rights and we're thinking like, where, where is God in the midst of all this? Why, why is God allowing all this to happen? And some of us have even gotten the wrong theology to believe that God is the one who is causing these things, to, to believe that God wants these people to suffer and to hurt and to have pain, um, that this is God's uh, desire for these people. Um, and so we, we tremble in fear um, of this God. We think that he is out to get us at times. And so we get lost in this moment too, um, but we ought not get lost in this moment. We have to remember the promises that God has given us as well. So let me get to our second point, favoring Pharaoh. It says, they said to Moses, the Israelites said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. The people, you see, are used to having a Pharaoh. The people are used to having a person or a divine uh, king, priest, to be their representative uh, uh, on behalf of the gods, um, the god, the Egyptian gods, right? They they don't feel like they can actually have a real relationship with this god who has caused this amazing, awful, terrible scene on Mount Sinai that's smoking mountain. They look at the scene in front of them and they say, you know, Moses, why don't you just speak to God? We don't we don't want to go up there. You deal with this. You be, you be the priest, you be, you know, you be our intermediary. Um, you be our mediator because we can't do this. We can't have this relationship with God. Um, and so if you, again, uh, think back or uh, recall what God has already called the, uh, the Israelites. In Exodus chapter 19, it says, 
that God had called them his treasured possession. God had called them his royal priesthood and a holy nation. And not only that, we should remember, too, that in First, uh, first Peter chapter 2, Peter says the same of us who are believers. He says, but you, this is uh, Peter now talking in the New Testament, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So like the Israelites, we too are called these things. Um, and yet sometimes we too want an intermediary. We want an intermediary because we have fear of approaching our God. We, we, we don't want sometimes to pray for ourselves. We, we want a pastor to pray for us. We want a friend to pray for us. We want somebody who's holy to pray for us because we're afraid to pray to our own God because we've forgotten the promises that he has made to us. The good things that he, the good history that we have together with our God. We forget about these things. We want an intermediary because we don't want the responsibilities of a relationship. We don't want a lot of times a two-way relationship, right? That's why a lot of times we are afraid to actually talk to people in person. If you think about uh, uh, the, the reality of the social media worlds, right? You think about how it's so easy for us to communicate through a text message or through Facebook or whatever, you know, DM somebody, but to actually talk to a person in real life, that's scary because it's direct. And we are afraid of entering into a direct relationship. If there's any way that we can make any relationship indirect, we'll go for that. Um, but what God is wanting for these people is that they wouldn't just be uh, a part uh, connected to a royal priesthood, but that they themselves would be a royal priesthood, that they themselves would be a holy nation and a treasured possession. And so the role of a priest is not only to go and speak to their God on behalf, of them, but also for uh, God to speak uh, through, or rather speak to these priests, right? These priests are supposed to be um, people who are representing God in the world. And we too shirk off that responsibility as believers today too, right? We are afraid. You might be a little bit less afraid of uh, speaking directly to God, but you might instead be afraid of talking to others about the God who has saved you, who loves you so dearly, who has adopted you as children. Because you, you forget that, or you may, in the moment, feel like, maybe this isn't true. Maybe this isn't completely true, or I haven't fully leaned into this. And so we shirk off that responsibility and pass it on to the person who's good at talking about God. We pass on that responsibility to the pastor, the preacher, who knows what they're saying, who's read their Bible really, really well, um, instead of us actually being representatives. But again, let me turn you back over to First Peter chapter 2. When he says that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, he has called you to this, just the same way that he had called the Israelites to this in the Old Testament. Don't shirk off that responsibility. So, uh, getting on to, uh, then he says, uh, uh, rather than they say, so you speak to us and we'll listen, 
but don't let God speak to us lest we die. They fear for a relationship with God because they, and in this, we see that they have a wrong fear of God, the wrong fear of God. They have this kind of fight or flight mentality going on here, that this fear that they're experiencing, the way that they are uh, reacting to this uh, welling up that they have in their chest and in their stomach is to run away from this. They see the scenes before them and they cower and they hide themselves and they want to um, get away from this, right? They want to get away from this. They think that this God is going to kill them the same way that he uh, wiped out the Egyptian army, the way that he uh, corrected and uh, really judged Pharaoh. They, they see what God has done to these people and they misunderstand it. They misunderstand the purpose why God had called them to this place, Mount Sinai, in the first place. They have the wrong fear. They, uh, the wrong fear. They run away. They don't want commitment, um, and instead, uh, they would rather uh, we find later on uh, work to earn this relationship. Right? They would rather, instead of having a real relationship with their God, rather than uh, really truly praying to Him, loving Him, they'd rather just offer sacrifices, offer sacrifices, offer sacrifices. And so they're either going to run away. They're not going to commit or they're going to work for it to try and earn this relationship. And so this is a fear that's governed by a conception of God that he is like the other gods, right? They are aware, they're well aware of the Egyptian gods, like we've been saying. They know that these gods will are capricious. They'll change their mind in an instant. If they're angry, they can uh, go and destroy and wreak havoc on their own people. And they're afraid maybe God's like this. You know why that they have this fear? Is they witnessed Pharaoh do this exact same thing to them, where they, he took away something from them uh, the moment that uh, he got angry with them. We see this um, back at the beginning, the first, uh, the first warning that Moses gave to Pharaoh. Um, Moses warned Pharaoh, let my people go. And how does Pharaoh respond? He says, you know what? I'm actually going to make their work harder. I'm going to make the Israelites work harder because you've asked this of me. And so instead of making their, uh, their job easier by providing uh, hay to make play for the bricks that they were, build, uh, they were making, it says, no, you guys go and find your own hay now. And so they've been conditioned. They think about um, these authority figures, these gods, um, and, and they you know, recognize that these gods are to be feared. They're afraid that they're going to just take away something. And so with God, the one true God, they have the same fear that God is just going to have his anger uh, get, I mean, get out of hand. And so uh, with all of this, uh, we think back to Kendrick's song. We think back to this, this fear that Kendrick had of his mom in that first verse, right? That there's all these different reasons and he can never really truly expect it until he does something that he's going to get beat for this and for that. And the reason why she was going to go and do all this was because she herself was afraid. She was in a vulnerable position. She was in a vulnerable position because she was afraid that she wasn't going to have enough money to take care of uh, her child. She was afraid that um, the government was going to come after her. She was afraid for all of these things. And so fear produces uh, fear in Kendrick. And we can assume probably Pharaoh had a similar fear because he himself was not in control. Pharaoh had a fear because if I let these people go, then everybody's going to think I'm weak. 
And I don't want people to think that I'm weak. And so he has to go and assume power, assume authority. But our God is not like that because the big difference here is our God's power is not limited. Our God's power is unlimited, right? God, it cannot be controlled in this way. God cannot be controlled by the powers of the world. God does not care if we think that he's powerless because he knows who he is. Amen. Amen. He knows who he is. And so why is this God different than the gods of Egypt? Why is this God different than Pharaoh? Because he is not insecure like Pharaoh. He, he has a place of security that his throne will last forever. He will never be kept up. And so when I, when I talk about this, I, I want to think about, uh, again, that line that uh, we saw in that, for, in that verse uh, that Kendrick's mom said. She said, seven years old, you think you run this house by yourself. You're going to fear me if you don't fear anyone else. Parents, dads on Father's Day, y'all have a responsibility to your children about what kind of fear you put in your kids. Because whatever kind of fear you put in your kids then translates the way that they fear the God that they, I mean, that uh, the one true God. And so we have to be aware that when we, uh, as, as for you guys, I'm not a parent, um, for y'all as parents, that you, you have to be aware of the fear that you put in your children, right? That it is a right fear. That is a fear that uh, leads to love, that, comes from a place of compassion and justice. Um, so be aware of the fear that you put in God, that you are in your role, preparing them for the fear that they ought to have um, in the Lord. Children also. Some of y'all have had parents that have, ha uh, that have failed you. Parents that have put the wrong kind of fear in you. And so I urge you and I urge myself to not allow the conception that we have had of our parents um, to allow that to, to affect or to even stain how we view the God who loves us, who's merciful um, and loving and kind and caring to us. So we ought to also remember the relationships that we have and how they impact the way that we see our God. All right. Third, fixing fear. Fixing fear. This is Moses' response to the people. He says, he said to the people, do not fear. For God has come to test you. He says, take off that wrong fear because God is here to test you. Testing. So that should be reassuring. Here's a test. Don't be afraid. And uh, are these people prepared for this test? Do they know that they're going to be tested today? It's like a pop quiz. Um, and yet uh, he says, don't be afraid because God has come here to test you. Well, I want to share with you a little bit about testing in the scriptures. So. Uh, think back to the very first uh, pages of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, the first test that we see in the scriptures. So uh, in this test, there's Adam and Eve, and they're in uh, the Garden of Eden. And so God has given them this role and this responsibility to have dominion over the earth. He's given them this responsibility to subdue the earth um, and subdue creation, that they are uh, in fact, supposed to be rulers over all the world that God has prepared for them, uh, that they're supposed to be his governors in the world, almost like um, a royal priesthood there in the Garden of Eden. They're supposed to um, be his stewards 
in this place. And he gives them this one responsibility that in the middle of this garden, there is the tree of life and there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, and so he says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, and so in the midst of this garden, in the midst of this role and responsibility that they have, they are uh, given this test. They're given this test. And so the test is, will you obey? Will you not only obey and get, I mean, do the job that you've been given, but will you dwell safely in the good creation that I have given you? Will you dwell with me in Eden? Because God was there with them in the Garden of Eden. Will you dwell in this good relationship in all the providence that I have given you, or will you disobey? This is the test that's set before Adam and Eve, and what do they do? They're deceived. They're deceived, and they fail the test. They eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge given you. And so they are deceived. And what is the result? It is that they have a separation between them and God. They're removed from the Garden of Eden, and God is veiled. That they can no longer dwell safely with their God in the Garden of Eden, um, in his perfect providence there. Instead, that they have to live in a world that is broken by sin. And so what does fear of the Lord look like in that midst, in the midst of all of that? True fear of the Lord in the Garden of Eden looked like dwelling, um, knowing that the creator of all the things around them, the one who is the sustainer of all of the Garden of Eden, the one who has built this garden for them, that has loved them so generously to put them in the middle of it and to just take care of it um, and to dwell with them lovingly, um, that uh, this is what fear of the Lord looks like for them. But their fear of the Lord has become distorted by the deceiver. Their fear of the Lord was distorted by the deceiver that this God, he doesn't want good things for you. That's what the deceiver told Adam and Eve. And yet they they believed the deceiver rather than their creator. Again, we see another test in the Bible immediately following in the next generation, Cain and Abel. Uh, both Cain and Abel present offerings to the Lord and Abel's offering for whatever reason is accepted, but Cain's is not. Uh, and uh, God warns Cain. He says to him that you ought to, uh, he says, um, you ought to do what is pleasing uh, and be lifted up by the Lord and rule over the sin that is crouching at your door. This is the command that he gives to Cain when he knows he's suffering from jealousy. He has this, uh, uh, he knows what's going on in Cain's heart because Abel's offering was received and Cain's was not. And so what does it look like to fear the Lord, uh, to truly fear the Lord and to listen to what he's telling him to do? It looks like, again, doing what is pleasing, being lifted up by the Lord, ruling over sin. And what does he do? He fails the test by doing what is not pleasing to the Lord and allowing sin to rule over him. Again, we see another test in the Bible, uh, in Abraham's story, but we have a completely different result this time. So the test that's given to Abraham is he is uh, being tested to sacrifice his one and only son. This is in Genesis chapter 22. And so God is telling him to give up, right? He's testing his faith to give up the one thing that he treasures most. See, Abraham is an old, old, old man at this point. He has one child, and he's been promised that he's going to uh, have many descendants uh, in his old age. And so how is this going to happen if he, his only one descendant in his old age is going to die? 
But what does Abraham do? He chooses to fear the Lord, to live in the obedience to God's command for him. He lives in obedience with the hope for the things that had been promised to him. And so what would have been sin, right, in this case, was trusting himself, trusting in what was the only logical thing, right? The only logical thing to do was to just go and to, to keep his son, to protect his son, to ignore this command. But instead, he throws away that logic and he realizes the true logic that is to obey God. Because God is above this. God is above all of this. God can do anything. And so he trusts in the Lord and he passes this test. And that's why he's called Father of Faith. Jesus in the New Testament was tested as well. Jesus was tested in the wilderness before he embarked on this, uh, his ministry. He was tested in the wilderness um, uh, by, and he was tempted by Satan, it says. And in the midst of this, he's being promised all of these uh, good things, their so-called good things by, uh, by Satan, and Jesus, he refuses. And so he passes the test. He chooses to live in obedience to the Father, living into um, what's in store for him, what God has planned for him to be a blessing to those who believe. And then again, he is tested when he must face the cross. Jesus was tested when he was, must face the cross. And what does Jesus do right before he's arrested? He goes and he prays to the Lord and says, God, take this cup from me. I don't want to face this. But you know what he does is he faces it anyway because he trusts in the Father's plan. He trusts in the Father's plan. And so in the midst of all of this, we see, um, uh, again, Moses says, do not fear for God has come to test you because in the midst of testing, what testing consists of in all of these cases is God engaging in a relationship with these people that they would have true fear of the Lord. And what does it look like for Adam and what does it look like for Cain? What does it look like for Abraham and for Jesus? It looks like to trust in the Lord, to truly, deeply trust in the Lord rightly. So he says, do not fear for God has come to test you so that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. And that makes kind of no sense. He says, don't fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you. So don't fear, but also fear. He's talking about two different kinds of fears here. He's saying, don't have this wrong fear where you're afraid so bad that you need to run away from this relationship, that you need to shirk off these responsibilities. Don't be so afraid that you, need, you feel like you need to have a Pharaoh over you. Don't be so afraid that you think that I'm going to kill you. Instead, have a different kind of fear. Have a proper kind of fear that is being awestruck with love. Being awestruck with love. And I felt like uh, one of the songs uh, that we sung this morning really reminded me of how we ought to define a proper fear of the Lord. It says here that we are awestruck and we fall to our knees as we humbly proclaim, you are amazing God. And so something that we ought to see in, in this fear that we're talking about in the first place, this fear of death versus this fear of the Lord that consists of trusting the Lord, is in both cases, there is this welling up in the chest. There is this deep butterfly feeling in the stomach, um, just like when a person's ready to jump off a plane or do something really scary, right? It's that adrenaline that's flowing through, that, through us. And the best way to describe that 
is fear because in both cases, they are this same emotion that we don't even know how to describe. Um, and so uh, think about it uh, in this way, and, and I'll probably get a little bit shade for this. Um, it's like a, a bride and a bridegroom, right? When you think of a wedding ceremony and you have all of these uh, grooms that are so excited for their bride to come out and they're just waiting with anticipation and they might be shaking and uh, you know, you can see it on their faces, what's happening inside of them, this excitement that's happening. And a lot of them, you know, they, they see the bride come out and they start bawling. I, I get shade because I didn't. Um, but I, <laughs> uh, so do you remind you that? But um, yeah, I mean, you, you see this fear that they have that's within them, that those emotions that are welling up within them. Um, and, uh, and with this, we ought to understand that this is the kind of fear that the Israelites ought to have had in this moment. Is instead of using that emotion to run away, that they ought to run toward the God who loves them and cares for them, who has blessed them in all of these ways. And so he says, uh, it ought to be, or rather, I, I say, uh, it's an uncontrollable excitement. That's what this fear is. It's an uncontrollable excitement. It's being struck with wonder of what lies ahead. And so uh, with all of this, what does what fear consist of? Thinking back to that verse, fear is connected to being tested um, and tested. Uh, uh, he says, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, right? So in the midst of this test, have this fear of the Lord so that you may not sin. In the midst of this test, have the proper fear of the Lord so that you may not sin. And so I'll hearken us back to James chapter 1, uh, what George read for us this morning before I came up. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So testing. Testing, uh, the Bible gives tons of different metaphors for this. Uh, they give the metaphor of smithing metal, right? What you need to do in order to produce a strong sword is you need to get that metal ready. You need to get that metal ready by putting it in a furnace so that the impurities that are within the metal that's been just poured uh, can be, uh, all the impurities uh, flood out, they're burned out. And so what's left is this very strong metal that can be used and it's powerful and won't break. And so this is uh, how we can see testing. It's put, being put into the furnace so that you come out on the other side um, stronger. Uh, another example that they, that they explain here, or rather in the scriptures in Malachi, is uh, fuller's soap. And when I read this, I was like, what? Fuller's soap? What is that? Uh, it's actually... Uh, what they do is they need to clean linens, right? In the Old Testament, they need to clean linens that they've uh, prepared. And the only way to clean the linens they have is by using a really powerful acid. And the only powerful acid that they had at that time was uh, urine, sheep's urine. So they used sheep's pee that they actually fermented. And so they would ferment it and it would be fermenting for weeks. And they would put these linens into this, what's called fuller soap or fermented urine. Um, and uh, through that, the impurities in the linen would come out. It would wash away the impurities and it would be clean when it came out. I really needed to wash it again because it smelled like urine. But, um, 
But what would happen is the impurities would fall off of this linen. And again, another example, um, a, a modern day example, uh, think of, of chemotherapy, right? You have a problem, cancer, uh, and the only, sometimes the only way to stop this cancer is by introducing chemotherapy. And a lot of times chemotherapy has a lot of devastating effects where it, uh, it hurts the body in some ways. But the purpose of chemotherapy is to kill those cancer cells. So you undergo this process um, that hurts you a little bit so that the bad thing is rooted out. And that's what's happening in all of these cases. That's the testing um, that, uh, that can be compared to uh, in the Bible. That's the testing. So it's removing impurities, going through something that's really difficult. Think of you know a furnace. Think of going through sheep's urine, going through all these really tough things, um, going through these awful things so that on the other side, we would come out purified, that we would come out holy. That's what God is doing when he's putting us to the test. He's preparing us um, for what he has on the other side. And that's what he's doing for the Israelites here. He says, do not fear that I'm going to kill you. Do not fear that you're going to die because you're in a relationship with me. Instead, have a proper fear knowing that I am your God, that I love you and that I'm compassionate and merciful. Um, and then I have a plan for you because I'm going to put you through something, something that's difficult, and you're going to have to trust me through it. You're going to have to trust me through it. And so this is what James picks up in uh, verse 5 of chapter 1. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. How do we pass the test? How do we pass the test? It's only through trusting in the Lord. We can't do it on our own. We're going to fail if we try to do it on our own. And that's why we saw Adam and Eve fail. That's why we saw Cain fail. It's because they tried to do it on their own. They tried to solve the problem that existed within them on their own. They tried to solve that rumbling inside of them, that trembling that they felt because of what was at stake. Um, in, in their cases, and they dealt with it on their own. And what God is telling us to do is when we are being put to the test, know that I am a good God and that I care for you, that you're my children, and I want you to go through the test with me. I want you to go through the test with me. And so what does he tell them? What does James tell us who are believers? He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his face, or face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer, being no hearer, uh, forgets, uh, who forgets, but a doer who acts, uh, he will be blessed in his doing. So what are, we, what are we being called to? We're being called to faith. We're being called to faithfulness. And again, it is not by doing all this uh, on our own. It's about trusting the Lord in the midst of all of this. We can't do it on our own. We need to trust him. And so a, a final thing, he says, uh, it's through the law of liberty. Law of liberty. Um, and those two things might seem like a contradiction. Law versus liberty. Those things that seem like opposites. 
what is what is he asking us to trust in? He's trusting, or he's asking us to trust in the gospel. He's asking us to trust that we have been liberated through Jesus Christ. That Jesus, he died the perfect death, right? He died as a sacrifice. He died willingly, um, so that we would have new life. And he uh, rose again, defeating the grave. He defeated sin and death. And so, what does God call us to? He asks us to trust Him in this, that we would put our full faith in this. And when we approach times of testing, the difficult things that we have to face, the things where it makes no sense, or it feels like it makes no sense to do what's in front of us, to continue to trust in the Lord when things don't make sense around us, what are we supposed to be doing is to remember the Lord, to remember the Lord. What did, what did the Israelites forget in that moment when they approached us and I? They forgot. They forgot the plagues. They forgot God's salvation of them. And we ought not forget the good things that God has done for us too. Um, so may we remember when we are facing times of uh, testing, when we're facing times of trials, um, that our God is not a God who fails. Our God is not a limited God, but a God who controls everything. He is in control always uh, to the end of time. And uh, we ought to wait and hope for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. So with those things in mind, let me go ahead and pray for us uh, and uh, pass the mic. God, thank you so much for uh, what you're teaching us in your word. Thank you for uh, allowing us to understand uh, the proper fear of the Lord, that you're helping us understand that you don't want us to shrink back and run away from you. That's not the fear that you call us to. You're calling us to a fear that consists of actually loving you, running towards you, uh, knowing that you are God. And so I pray, I pray that um, that truth uh, would ring in our hearts when we're facing times of peace and blood. Uh, I pray that you would uh, just uh, remind us that, uh, that you are with us in times of testing, Lord, uh, times where it feels like it makes no sense um, to, to trust in you. I pray, Lord, that uh, you'd remind us of this relationship that we have with you um, today and day. Lord, I pray for this in Jesus' name.